0: You're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast with your hosts, Robert Gowan, Rudy Lindsay, Mike Pritz, and Kat Kalin.
1: Can you hear us okay? Okay, yeah, I got you a lot of clear. My volume's way up. <laughs> way up. Did, did it scare you? No, well, not quite, but it just kind of spooked me a little bit.
0: <laughs> uh, where are you at now, William?
1: Yes. I'm in Mississippi. Yes, I'm from here, born and raised. Uh, my parents' house is 93 yards that way.
0: Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy. 93 yards.
1: Well, you know, I got a sniper rifle set up at 93 yards in case somebody's <laughs> messing with them. Okay. I got a blow on top of the house, too.
0: Well, I see the weapon <laughs> I, in the background there.
1: Oh, oh, that's my, yeah, that's one of my M4s. I keep it there when I'm in the office.
0: Yeah, <laughs> nice. You
1: know, like, like they say, 100% of home invasions happen at home.
0: <laughs> yeah, so true.
2: I, it's, it's Mississippi a contested state? I mean, is it, is it an area that uh, you're worried about that? No, not really. But As I'm coming here the zombie apocalypse happens. That's that's where I'm heading.
1: Yeah, part. well yeah, it'd be a good place to be. Uh but you know, I've uh, my brothers and I we've had a reputation for kinda of being like any guns when we were kids and uh, you know, me going in the special forces and all that, everybody know about that. So if somebody comes here to do something bad, uh, they're gonna be prepared, so <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. You know. So where do your brothers live? They live also about 100 yards away from your parents?
1: No. Uh, my bro- uh, both my brothers live in Hattiesburg. So to give you some uh, dahlia in, I live about an uh, hour south of Jackson, two hours north of the coast, and directly in the center. They live in Hattiesburg, which is where USM University of Southern Mississippi, my alma mater, which is close to Camp Shelby, So about an hour away.
0: Yeah. By. Okay. So did you do some work with 20th Group that's there? Yes,
1: yeah, so I it- did. I spent um, so I was in 20th group from '95 till 2013, and then I spent a couple years in the IRR, and I got picked up for a
2: assignment down in South South.
0: Gotcha. So that's one right now. So how'd you guys meet then, Mike? You and William?
2: We worked a couple of courses together, some of our elicitation courses. That actually, it's the same program that Rudy works on. Um, I don't know, Will. Do you know Rudy Lindsay? Have you run across yes. him?
1: I so, ripped him out in uh, in Afghanistan '05, 6
2: yeah, so he's he's one of the company employees here. We just moved to Colorado, working out by the airport. And I, I don't know exactly if that's the program he's working on, but it's the same kind of thing that, that Rudy's been doing for a while since he's retired.
0: Yeah, matter of fact, Rudy's now out in the boonies. I don't know if he has internet yet or what's going on there in that situation. He was talking he's about a
2: satellite internet. Where he that's lives what. Out there yeah, that's so what so he said.
0: Yeah. Wow,
1: that's 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 really off the grid.
2: <laughs> I don't know if we talked about this before, but I I, I worked an exercise down there in Hadesburg one time. Okay, can you um, me? Yeah. Well, there was there was a team out on Camp Shelby. We were doing everything in town. Right. Mm-hmm. It was all urban. And yeah. uh, we actually did a meet at a uh, football game there. At, what it's Southern Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and man, what a what a cool venue. I, I can't believe we didn't talk about this before, but yeah. uh, we had it. We had it set up so the guy didn't know who he was meeting and all I right. had was a ticket. And you know you can't get into the you can't get in that facility with any kind of weapons, arms. You get searched as you're going in. You know you go through a right. metal detector. So it was a way to screen him in. We got him okay. seated next to uh, the individual who had the other ticket that he was supposed to meet with, and then we said hey don't say anything to him until the fourth quarter. So this kid is sitting <laughs> there trying to build rapport with everybody around him, and uh-huh. he's in character and he's talking about exercise stuff. And nobody knew what he was talking about. Of course, if you didn't know, you just thought, you know, the kid, yeah, whatever, and watch football game. And then finally, the the guy was a high level guy that he was meeting. Actually, kind of broke in and in the fourth quarter, and, and just said something very quick and got up and left. So <laughs> we made him. Something. What a great venue it was, though, man. Yeah, I did the one up in Denver where I went to the soccer game. It was kind of kind of the mm-hmm. same thing, but uh, it was pretty cool. Yeah, I went anyway.
1: in uh in Denver at uh, one of the basketball games. What is that? The Cavaliers or no, um, the I- Nuggets. Kidding, yeah, I haven't watched a professional basketball
0: since Michael yeah. Jordan left. <laughs> you are not this much. You're dating yourself, Will. Dating yourself.
1: <laughs> Tell me about <laughs> he, it. All of us.
0: So, wait. Southern Mississippi, Brett Favre. Uh, now we're... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> is he yeah, still hanging yeah. around that area? I I realized at one time there he went back home, started hunting and taking a good life. Yeah. Started coaching, yeah, he, I think... He
1: lives uh, right outside of Hasburg. Yeah, about... about 50 minutes for me.
0: Isn't he still um, coaching he, his son's football or something?
1: Well, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, because that's in, um, so I li- where I live is, if I went 100 yards that way, we're in the Hattiesburg Media Market. But where I am, we're in the Jackson Media Market. So most of that is on uh, WDAM on uh, Channel 7.
0: Oh, gotcha. Okay.
1: <clears throat> so I have been really, really uh, tracking him. But he's, uh, he's well known and well respected on USM, you know, and known throughout the community for doing good things.
0: Oh, yeah. Wow, it's interesting that you're like 100 yards from everything. Parents, the whole (laughs) (laughs) lot.
1: Main road.
0: (laughs) You strategically placed this house.
1: Yeah, yeah, I knew I wanted to build my house here ever since I was a kid. You know, it was one of those, you know, back in the old days, the old folks would talk about the strategic placements of houses so you don't have to have, you know, air conditioners. Because back in those days, they didn't have air conditioners. Right. So um, where I have it, Plates is right on old red clay, so I don't have to worry about any type of major movement or anything. And um, it's right where a natural breeze comes through. But for the most part, I run my air conditioners, even though I'm in Pearl River Valley, which is the hottest one of the hottest places in, in the South. I'm going to my air conditioner on Saturdays and probably about two or three hours a week. That's crazy. Uh, that's just when I have company.
2: Robert, I should have probably warned you that Will is somebody who does a lot of research on just about everything that he does. <laughs> you'll, you'll hear that when he starts talking about the Cooking on Fire project that he's been through since he came back from Afghanistan. I mean, the, the amount of research that goes into yeah. these books is incredible.
0: Yeah, I haven't picked up one of your books yet, but I'm fascinated you living still on a red clay road because you're probably out there marking the tracks and the whole bit and ticking the grass and making sure that it's all laid out. And that way you can find if there's any new tracks coming down and the whole bit, I guess. Yeah, huh?
1: Somewhat. <laughs> we got, we got a couple uh, of couple, uh, pretty uh, ruthless uh, German shepherds. Uh, uh, we bought a couple about four years ago to keep out my mom and dad. So um, not really worrying about too much. Anything that comes in the yard gets killed. Uh, Those dogs, <laughs> squirrels, coons you know all kind of things I mean, we wake up like at least once a week i have to get the shovel and take something and i have to tell them hey look stop killing stuff and bring it in the street i mean in the yard so they're, they're pretty good about it. any anything that is out of place they, they make sure
0: well mike if uh, we you ever take me to will's house just make sure we call him ahead of time
1: yep i give you fire sectors and all that good stuff <laughs> cars, words, you get here
0: so tell me, when was it that you got into cooking? I mean, was it while you were out in Afghanistan that that love st- really started coming into play?
1: Oh, no. I've, I've been cooking all my life. I literally, I don't even remember when I started. I mean, it's been that long. We, we've always cooked outdoors. I have a lot of Indian in my black background on both sides of the family. I believe Choctaw on my mom's side Natchez, Natchee's on my mom's side and Choctaw on my dad's side. So we grew up with somebody cooking on a you know fire, you know mainly root vegetables and things like that, cooking on wood stoves and and then of course the Boy Scouts and everything else and then of course everybody barbecues. So is I've been literally cooking outdoors my entire life and indoors. Watch my mom and my uh, my grandmothers and my aunts whenever we had big gatherings and stuff, family reunions. I man the grill. So I just basically. I've done it all my life, but I've always been a kind of a methodical person, real OCD, like literally. Yeah. And um, so so (laughs) everything that I really like, I kind of take a more methodical approach and learn the principles behind it, as well as um, all the little details that, you know, know, different techniques that different people in different parts of the world really use. But on my first trip outside of the country with the military was uh, Argentina. Okay. And, um, I've always liked cooking outdoors with a live fire, but that's something that's not quite as practical. Not that many people do it. You know, the, the tools that you need to cook that way are, are usually not available. But that was my, always my thing. But when I went to Argentina, I saw that they did live fire cooking like we do barbecue, and I was really, really impressed with that. And at that time, I started really getting back into live fire um, and embracing it. And pretty much, I generally cook with a live fire more than I do with a grill. I mean, when I say live fire, I'm talking about taking a wood fire, building it very hot, burning it down to coals. Once I get ready to start cooking, I use some of my tools and I separate the the wood that has not been fully engulfed in flame. I move that to the side, harvest the coals, and then I put more smaller wood and then build a fire back and get it going good and hot. So uh, it can continue to produce coals every 15 minutes, and then I start the cooking process.
0: I'm thinking. now you're saying fire pit. I'm thinking you just have the typical old stones around. The-
1: just the ground. Just the ground. Yeah. Right.
0: Right. So we're not right. talking about yeah. the old uh, barbecue kind of pit.
1: No, I have a pretty mature fire area, meaning that um, I'm not really concerned with a lot of the, you know, basically a fire getting away with you. Yeah. Um, I used to do the. I used to do the stones and different types of bricks. And the problem I have an issue with with that is that it does not afford me as much control that I like. Because once I get started cooking, sometimes generally the predominant wind is from the west, and sometimes it's from the southeast, and it could change, you know, while you're cooking. And so... You know, I'll move my cooking area, you know, to adjust for the wind. I mean, that's that's common sense. No matter how to choke on smoke. So uh, for the most part, I found that the stones and stuff, they really didn't serve much purpose. Not unless I'm actually cooking on stone. That's a different story when I sometimes slice beef or pork a little thin and, and cook directly on the stone. You know, stick it in the fire, pull it out, and then cook on it.
0: Oh, wow. Cooking on the stone. See, now that just kind of blows my mind. Now, I'm guessing this fire pit is like about 100 yards away from your house then
2: so it's actually about 40 47 yards. tell robert tell us how you got into the whole travel portion where you went around the world i mean we know that you've cooked all the time uh since you were young we knew that you cooked for your team when you're in afghanistan mm-hmm. uh, i'm gonna ask you to tell a story here in a little bit about one of those times but tell us about your experience coming back from afghanistan and, and re-entering civilian life and needing something to really focus all of your your energies on okay
1: yeah so i got back From a third tour, and you know, just like most guys, have a a few readjustment issues. I've always had some readjustment issues coming back, uh, but they were never that dramatic. For some reason, the third tour, uh, which uh, to me wasn't any much more better or worse than any of the others, I was in more of a leadership position most of it. Uh, So I I came back just having some issues adjusting, mainly sleep. I just could not go to sleep, and whereas most guys would fall asleep, you know, wake up like one or two o'clock in the morning. I would literally not go to sleep, you mm. know, three or four nights a week, and um, then I would crash. You know, you know, we all vets, we know, we know, the, know the story. So tried everything, you know, tried from the drinking, tried, the, you know, the P ninety X, all kind of stuff. Just try to get some sleep, and nothing really worked. And then so I had an intervention from the family who said basically, hey, bro, you know, you got some issues, you need to get fixed. You know, so I went to the VA, and. um, when I finally got there, they told me, Hey, look, you need you need to come up with a project, something that's very important for you, something as important as what you guys did, you know, when you're downrange. And just basically do something like that. So basically trying a couple things. That's what I came up with. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna write the most comprehensive books that have ever been written on cooking with fire, and then I'm gonna build the fire cooking tools that allow us to do so safely. So I did some planning and then I just basically put together a basic outline outline on what I wanted to cover and then I looked at different parts of the world. I did a, like a three month, three month activity analysis where every day when I, or every other day, however many days a week I was out by the fire cooking. I wrote down all the stuff that I did. And cause you know, when you do stuff for so long, you just don't know what you're doing. You know what I'm saying? I'm right. kind of like, yeah, it's Michael Jordan. Why did, why did he do that? You know, turn his hip this way or that way when he, before he has no idea what you're talking about because he's, He's gotten good at it. He's gotten used to it. So I, I did an activity analysis, and I kind of put all that stuff into some type of framework that most people could, you know, understand or I can effectively explain. And and I and I started putting the book to that book together. Once I did that, at that point, I started, you know, identifying people all over the world who knew how to cook uh, with fire, who were professionals at it, and I just went out and went and visited them. And uh, so what? what I did. <laughs> That you know, it was just it was yeah. funny. It was absolutely crazy. Like for example, when I wrote uh, the one chapter on controlling flame-based fire, so I you know like okay, where would I find someone who is the expert in controlling just the flames? So I started thinking, and I'm like, you know what, paella, you know the, the traditional Spanish dish, Sure. Well, it's done in a really thin carbon steel pan. I mean, really, really thin, and they do it over a live fire. Traditionally, they do it over a live fire. So I was like, okay, so if I was looking for somebody, maybe that person, because they can scorch their meal like literally in about three to five seconds if they're not paying attention or not knowing what they're doing. So I was like, okay, let so let's look at paella, where, where it comes from, Spain, what part of Spain, Valencia. Uh, so I am like, okay, I need to go to Valencia. So where do I need to go in Valencia? So I said, okay, I need to find the oldest restaurant that specializes in paella. And I need to go there, and hopefully, it's a family name restaurant that's been in one um, one family, because you got and that you know generational yeah. knowledge is handed down. Sure. And you know their name is on it; they're really you know re- re- really serious about it. So to make a very long story short, fast forward a few uh, few months, I knock on while well, get to the Valencia, go to the tourist office, and I tell the ladies there, you know what I'm doing, and I, I ask them, I said, "Is this the best place, Casa Camelia?" And they were like, oh, "Well, we can't tell you." where the best place is, because, you know, that's against our rules or whatnot. And I said, okay. I said, where would you take your family if you were going, you know, do a big paella thing? They were like, oh, we'll take them there. Like, Thank you. And they yeah, that's, could not. Yeah. So I walked there. I get to the place right before they open, And the owner, Antonio, was in the back. I sit down, I have a beer. And I have all these tools that I bought on, you know, throughout Spain. Because I started off, this is like my 10th day in Spain. And so I walk in there like a hobo or refugee from Afghanistan or you know Syria or something. So I sit down and I explain what I, you know, what I'm doing. And they're like, "Okay, let, let me bring you to Antonio." And Antonio walks out. You know, I tell him what I'm doing, and he looks at me and he was like, "No, why are you here in my restaurant?" And I said, "Look, you know, I write a book on cooking with fire, and I'm writing a chapter on flame controlling flame-based heat. So I figured the best person is here." And then so he was like so he leaves. He comes back and then he says, why are you here at my restaurant? It's obvious to me you're about to throw me out. <laughs> yeah. So I, I explained to him, once again, slowly, but more, you know, uh, made, made sure I was careful with my words. Then he says, okay, so you were in America, and you're writing this book, and you decide that the best place to find this particular knowledgeable person on this subject is in Spain, in Valencia, in this restaurant, in my kitchen. That's what you're saying. I said, yes. And then he walks away. I was like, what the hell is up with this guy? <laughs> so, so he comes back and he says, we we run a uh, upscale restaurant. A lot of people come here. My uh, uh, guys in the back are very, very uh, busy. We don't allow anybody in our kitchen. Do you understand? I said, I understand. And so I'm thinking, like, all right, I'll have some pie up, finish my beer, and I'll leave. And then he said, okay, come on back. I'll, I'll, I'll introduce you to Louise.
0: Wow. So
1: he takes me in the back, and I spend the day with Luis and Antonio and another guy who's in training. And I tell you, the stuff that I observed there was absolutely phenomenal, and it, it just reinforced why I went there in the first place. Some of the things that they were doing in a level of attention to detail—it it was just—it was just amazing. For a guy who's been cooking with fire all his life, I was absolutely dumbfounded, absolutely dumbfounded
2: by some. And, of and stuff. Robert, this is just one story from one country, yeah. and Will did this yeah. all over the world. I, I mean, yeah. it, it, how how many years, Will? I actually knew I wanted to write the book starting in 2000.
1: So I did an abbreviated version of what I just mentioned to you from 2000 to about 2012. In 2012 on, it was, you know, Old Testament serious, just like that. Every place that I went, it was for a purpose. Sometimes I was only in the country for sometimes maybe 10 days. Another, this particular country, I might be there for four hours, but I'm there to see one specific person to ask one specific question or answer a question or something like that. And in many cases, I was doing a lot of travels during the Snowden times. You know, when people travel the world, for the most part, if you travel the world by yourself, they automatically assume that you're military or government.
0: Yeah. So what, what did you learn during your time in Afghanistan? I mean, would you learn different techniques as well there during your time? Because I mean, that was right yeah. during that same window where you were mm-hmm. being deployed as well.
1: Yep. Yeah, I learned uh, a lot about non, you know, traditional Afghan footbread, and um, also kebabs. Believe it or not, it, it seems real, you know, kebabs, satay, depending on what part of the world, it seems real simple. And for the most part, it is. But you learn the different degrees, you know, different techniques on what they would do for the tougher cuts of meat, what they would do for the leaner cuts of meats and different things like that, vegetables, separating the two, balancing fat with, you know, protein and different things like that. So, you know, I learned a pretty good bit there. So we were about a month and a half, two months into our, our last tour, and uh, we just did this, um, this village medical, we call them MedCaps, but it's basically a big uh, medical event where we bring in nurses, uh, veterinarians, doctors, translators to uh, you know, work with the Afghan the people, you know, seeing after some of their needs and different things like that. So over a period of five days, we treated something like 3,000 people. I mean, it was a big deal. And so our little base was designed for about 12 people. We had like 70, 70 or 80 people on our little base. So, um, one thing I said on the, the final day, which was Friday, I said, you know what? I want to do a big, you know, like a Argentine kind of deal, like Afghan version of Argentine kind of deal for these guys, just to show everybody that how appreciative we were. And so sure enough, you know, um, Around three o'clock, uh, we got done around maybe two that day. Three o'clock, I had the you know had a bunch of wood started fires going, and I started uh, roasted eggplants and uh, onions and ashes. We had some uh, some steaks, which was hard to come by. Um, I uh, got some French butter for the French, really really good butter, which is something that you don't get in Afghanistan, um, and some other different accoutre- accoutrements or whatnot. And we had a couple grill grates. We had a Bobcat window, which was a bunch of grates or whatever that we used for actually as a grill, if you will. So we're going in, we're cooking, you know, everybody's having a good time. And then later on we eat, you know, and, um, so I noticed right, when, right before we started eating, I noticed that a lot of the guys wanted to help. And so I was telling them, hey, why well, don't you do this for me, you do that for me, and so on and so forth. And I noticed the women were standing around. And I wasn't trying to be politically correct or anything, but I saw started just standing around. I said, hey, excuse me, do y'all want to get involved with this, learn how to do any of this? And they were like, no, uh-uh, no, chief. You just keep <laughs> doing what you're, you're, you're doing right now. One of the ladies said, no, this is by far the most manliest thing that men can do. Carry on. You know, so I thought. I mean, we all laughed and we all got a good time, but it, that that stuck with me. I mean, that stuck
2: with me to a point that is is literally the first quote in my book.
0: Oh, well, that's <laughs> and he awesome. tells that
2: story in the book. You know, too. I think it was on. I think I've seen it when they initially launched the Kickstarter campaign. Yes. I can't remember if that's where it was, or some of the other stuff that i read that you sent me. But it's yeah. that keeps coming up, and every time we talk about it, I, I, I always say, "Hey, man, well will tell them the story about the chicks in Afghanistan." But yeah. it's not what you think is going to come out of it. But it's uh, it's primal, yeah. it's, it's manly, it's earthy. I mean, it's it's what men were made to do: cook with fire. So
1: you'll see on some of my uh, stuff that's associated with what I'm doing, you'll see the words primal, uh, modern, and manly. But primal and mo- modern are Two words I got from those conversations I heard the ladies talking about that night. When they're just standing around, you know, they were like, this is manly. This is, this is Promo. This is how men were designed to cook. I mean, all that type of stuff. And once I actually go hot with the actual marketing of my company and whatnot, you'll see a lot of those things that originated from that night in Afghanistan.
0: I just find this fascinating that you go from your special forces soldier. Now you're, you know, during this time frame, you still have this love that you grew up with, that your family has passed on and it really is your passion as you're moving through this, but maybe you didn't know it was your true passion, or was it something that you always knew was your passion and you just waited for it to catch up for the right opportunity?
1: Well, I knew it was my passion, but it was kind of like we all have passions that are not really that big of a deal. We don't really put a lot of thought in. Sure. I would say the people that awakened my passion um, the most on live fire cooking was the Hina family in Argentina. When I went down there in 2000, I, I, I uh, we did our deployment. I was um, attached with Seventh Group. Our, our company went from Twenty Group went down there with Seventh, and we spent uh, about, about a month there, if I remember correctly. And and you know she was teaching me about a culture and stuff like that. So I went back about six weeks later to do an immersion Spanish class. And at the last minute, because it was a unique type of opportunity, the funding fell through with the military. So I was like, okay, well I can't stay at this particular school. And I kept in touch with that family. And she called me back. She said, hey, come stay with us. You know, don't worry about the, getting money or whatever. Just come stay with us. So I stayed with them for like six weeks. And when they, they knew that I liked the live-fire cooking, cooking, yeah, they answered every question I had. If they didn't have an answer, they took me somewhere or did. I mean, wow. we would drive two or three hours. I mean, it was just, and so I dedicated the book to them. You wow, know? okay. Uh, but they are, I would say, the ones who really, really awakened, if you will, my passion for live-fire cooking, cooking because to me, I've always, you know, just like a lot of guys in SF, we're, we're seeking those challenges. And frankly, you know, I cook on a barbecue grill, and I want to put down on guys who barbecue. Barbecue is cool. But I, I like to, you know, equate live-fire cooking. If you want to compare barbecue to live-fire, I would say barbecue is like swimming in a pool. You know, live-fire cooking is like swimming in the North Atlantic.
0: Yeah. You know. I can so totally see that. A lot of things. Well, you know, and when you're talking about cooking with a grill, usually it's coals. So you get that kind of coal flavor whereas when you mm. use wood chips or something like that within it, then you get more of the wood flavor, which I prefer mm. at, over just the coal taste. I mean, I grew up on coals because that's all we had when we were growing up. And mm. then nowadays though, I just can't handle the coals that much. I love the flavor. The live fire cooking is really fascinating because you're using what you have available to you, which is wood different types of wood, give different flavoring. A lot of people smoke nowadays, which is really Mm -hmm. big. And so, I mean, I'm sure you probably have done some of that as well.
1: I'm smoking a brisket right now. (laughs) (laughs) I got about 40 people coming over in a couple hours and I'm cooking. On on Christmas and New Year's, I always cook a big meal for most of the folks in our neighborhood um, who don't really have a place to go. You know, last year, this time last year, I had a house full. And for like two hours, the youngest person here was myself my nephew and his girlfriend and my cousin everybody else the youngest was 67 the oldest was like 88 so wow you know
0: <laughs> these guys in the group you must have been their best friend i mean you know you feed people well they love you especially when you're yeah, out there in the field right. like that
1: yeah i mean it's fun and and that's the thing about it you know i, I when i talk about fire you know my you know my like tell you, you know my eyes light up and all that stuff but we spent hours uh, talking about it yeah, yeah, and, and good bourbon as well. That's right. But, <laughs> I, I, had, I had way too much of that last night. The well, I, I sent, sent a little vodka because I was still cooking. But um, yeah, the, the thing is, we've been doing this when, when people stand around a fire and somebody's preparing a meal on that fire. We've been doing that for over two hundred thousand years. Period. I mean, right. it's, this is. Uh, it's like riding a bike for humanity. I mean, this is something that we've always done. However, with the rods and technology and modern, you know, trappings at the home, in the last 50 years or so, we started at least certain cultures have started to get away from that. And particularly the Western cultures like, you know, United States, uh, Great Britain, different places like that, obviously, with the exception of folks who live out in the rural areas. So that birthright of knowledge that's been handed down for thousands of generations have basically died out. And what I'm just trying to do, I'm trying to bring it back. Yeah. So it's just one of those things that I tell folks, you know, you never had a meal until you had one cooked over a live fire. And, you know, folks ask, you know, Hey, you talking about campfire cooking? I'm like, no, I'm not talking about campfire cooking because campfire cooking is out in the woods. You know, that stuff. of course you can do live fire cooking out in the woods. You can do it on your front porch, but I like to call it live fire entertaining because, you know, I'm drinking the craft beer You know, I have like 15, 10 or 15 different salts out there. We're listening to music. We're having, you know, drinking spirits, having a good time. And we're not cooking, you know, I've never cooked wieners on my freaking (laughs) life. I mean, I just, we're not doing it.
0: Marshmallow, no s'mores, Will? No s'mores.
1: Well, I did s'mores once because my niece just kept nagging me about it. But uh, (laughs) I mean, we do bone in rib I've done lobster. I've done uh, king crab, orchards, chicken, you know, prime rib. I've done all kind of stuff out there, you know, and it's stuff that you normally wouldn't associate with cooking out on an open live fire. And so I'm going to start my YouTube channel within the next month and I'm going to start bringing in some of the more modern stuff like sous vide cooking. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that where basically is you vacuum pack your food in its raw state, and you put it in a water bath at a very precise temperature. You finish it you know, either on a grill, in a saute pan, or with a live fire. So uh, one of the dishes I'm going to be uh, cooking probably in February will uh, be a sous vide prime rib with a ring fire.
0: Now, what you're talking about with vacuum sealing, it would make sure all those juices go deep down inside the meat. Right, that's, right. That's- and
1: you're actually... Um, you start in the cooking process in a water bath, and these um, sous vide—they're—they uh, they're call circulators, and you stick that in in the container, and it just circulates the hot water to that precise temperature. And when you're doing vegetables, it keeps the nutrients inside because nothing's leaching into the water. But when you do the um, the like a prime rib. You get it to the proper temperature that you're looking for, and then I'll stick a steak through it, and then I'll take it out and I'll bring my live fire kind of close, you know, maneuver my fire so I can get a good browning on all sides. And then serve it up serve it up at that point.
0: Sounds delicious. What are some of the greatest tips that you can pass on that you've learned to the just the person starting off? The basic type of thing. What
1: for cooking with fire? Yeah. Main thing is safety. that's the first thing I could tell you. You you just, you know, a fire is an an animal. It's a beast. And it's once, once it's uncontrolled, it will, I mean, you know, just bad things happen. So one be safe. Uh, Second, you know, just start with one or two techniques and stick with that until you get familiar with the actual, you know, uh, cooking with fire. I would say you definitely want to think out your, um, your tools. You want to have the tools that allow you to, to manipulate the fire safely. That's something I can help out with. In a few months, I got about eight tools developed, actually about 13, and I'm finishing up the prototypes on four over the next six weeks, and I'm gonna actually start selling these tools. And they're purpose-built specifically for cooking with fire, the type of cooking that I'm talking with. Right. I got one patent already um, issued by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. I have another patent on the way, and I'm gonna file my third patent. Uh, I think in late February or March. So. I would say definitely, you know, right now, for the most part, if you're in the States, there are not that many tools that are available to cook the way that I like to cook, that affords you the amount of control that I like. But whatever you're doing, just think it out. So just like a rake, a hoe, and a uh, shovel starting out, if sure. you will and um, build a very, very hot bar and you know just harvest the coals and just start cooking, just having a good time.
0: Do your books go into that type of detail that say, okay, step one, you know, do this by preparing the area?
1: Yes. Uh, so I have um, two eBooks available right now. I'm going to do a Kickstarter, the dry run Kickstarter campaign uh, last month, and I'm going to go hot live with the, the full version in, in April. And that will afford the money to actually print the books. But I go in detail that has never been gone before in this particular genre of books. And and I say that with, uh, you know, it sounds kind of arrogant, but let me put it in perspective. One of the best books that I've ever read on Cooking with Fire is by this guy named Francis Malman. He's from Argentina, classically trained chef, um, been doing, it, doing this all his life. His first book on Cooking with Fire has about three quarters of a page when he talks about wood. I have 11 chapters on wood. Oh, my God. So... You know everything you need to know about wood because, in you know, and I always get this. Well, who want to read all that stuff on wood? And I tell people, I said, look, when I travel the world and meet all these different asadores, which are asadores Spanish for a grill master or a professional who cooks with fire, I tell them, I say, hey, look, you know, these people that I talk with might not have you know a doctorate or anything like that, but when you talk to them about wood and fire, they have a you know the equivalent of a doctorate level education on Two forces interact, those two entities interact with each other. So the way I have the books broken up, the part one, it talks about, you know, all the details you need to know about the wood, the culinary application, fire, different things like that. Kind of the technical stuff, but it's not written like a dictionary. It's kind of fun, Mike, i tell you.
2: But the second... Uh, I, I, let me chime in, well, because, I, I, you know, you, you talk about 11 chapters on wood. I, I've read both of those books, but every chapter is laced with stories of experiences of his childhood, growing up, and then, you know, deployments to Afghanistan. It's a reference... I mean, if you, if you think about, like, you, you're going to have a, if you bought a cookbook, you wouldn't read it from cover to cover anyway. Right. So, but, but this one you can. You can read those experiences. You can read a little bit about the topic. Go to the next chapter, hear another story. It's broken up in a very easy-to-read manner. But once you've got it, and say you want to cook with some type of wood, and the only wood you have is, you know, I, I don't know, help me out, something that's wet, that's green, yeah, that, you uh, know. Pine wood. pine wood. And there's, there's a really? way pine? to bring that up there's a way to bring that up at the temperature and and cook with that type of wood if that's what you have and Will breaks it down in one of those chapters I never That's would've... what's cool about the
0: books Now that's that's really cool because it would be a story and you're also learning in the process and like you mm-hmm. said you only a cookbook you just whenever you're ready to cook prime rib you go to that chapter and that's all you want to look at but let me go back pine I never thought of only because pine typically once it's been cured for a while it it burns rather quick it's usually you can start other fires rather quickly with it just because of the the sap that's in it so i never would have thought of cooking on it that's the last thing Mm -hmm. i've ever thought of and we have tons of it here in the southeast
1: yeah i I never cook with pine uh i start my fires with pine we call it kindling, or
0: right right you know
1: um, we call it fat i mean right fat fat wood and so uh, so, generally speaking, that's not the ideal thing to cook with. However, in different parts of the world, like in Germany, that's all they use. And the, people ask me, what's the best wood to cook with? I'm like, where, where are you? Well, if you're in the Pacific Northwest, it's going to be alder. You know, if you're in Georgia, it might be, you know, hickory, uh, definitely uh, peach wood. You know, the uh, upper the north, northeast might be more some of your fruit woods and, and, and whatnot. Down here is generally pecan, oak, some hickory. So it, it depends on where you are in the world. You can ask the same question in different parts of the world. You know, you just have to adjust your techniques to different type of situation that you're in. I even tell people, like, for example, when I was in, um, we responded to Hurricane Katrina. We were down there on the coast, and this is kind of kind of funny, but we're down on the coast, and like two days in, you know, we got to this one neighborhood, and we were in um, Bay St. Louis, which was one town over from Waveland, which was erased off the map. We got, you know, got inward to this one neighborhood, and all we could smell was good food. And people were having a good time, like, well, hey, what's going on, you know? And they were just basically cooking off everything that was in their, their freezers. And uh, these guys walked up to a, a buddy of me and myself and said, hey, soldiers, where can we get some, um, you know, some charcoal and, or gas? I was like, hey, bro, the bridge is out, you know, nothing's open. And they were like, uh, I said, hey, just use, use some of the lumber this land about. And they were like, What? One guy was like, forceful, you can't use that stuff." And he looked at his buddy and he says, "Can you?" And I'm like, "Yeah, man, you can." It's it's, <laughs> it's kiln, dry, and spruce or pine. You know, it burns hot. You know, and keep you you know line maybe line your pit with some um, some bricks so you can have more uh, heat retention, and you know it's gonna burn fast. And I wouldn't put the lid on it because you're probably not used to that type of smoke quality. But you can grill on it, no problem whatsoever. They were like, all right, that's what we'll do. So in the last part of the book, I have a chapter on emergency entertaining. Right. Dining during disasters is what I call it. And right. you can even cook with treated wood. A lot of people, this is where you know, Ben and SF kind of helps out. When somebody says you can't do this, I ask why. And they're like, because oh, you, you can't. Just be quiet. You can't. Well, I don't respond well to that. So when people <laughs> say you can't cook with, say, treated wood, I was like, okay, why not? Because of smoke, obviously. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand that. So I said, so what we have is what you're telling me we have a problem with smoke, not the heat. So in a worst case scenario, if I had to cook and that's all I had, I can create a condition in which I can use that heat, but not use the smoke. So I have a chapter on if that's all you had in a worst case situation, uh, you know, I give you four, I think four, maybe five techniques on using that type of wood or any type of what I call unsuitable wood, you know, in a worst case scenario. I
0: was going to ask you about that quickly, you know, about the worst case scenario or survival technique, Mm -hmm. whether or not you included that in your book. So that's good to hear that you did.
1: Yeah, and it's the story behind that too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we were, I got what, it was some like little small holiday, like I, uh, I think it was Halloween. Uh, I think it was 2012 or 13. So we were getting, well, we were enjoying the drinks and stuff downtown Denver, Colorado at Rock Bottom Brewery. And, you know, and some friends we were standing around. And um, this guy right next to us was wasted. And he was like, really wasted. And he's was, like, hey, man, I heard what you're doing. You know, can, are you going to do anything on prepping? And I was like, Eh, Well, you know, he's explaining. I mean, he was drunk. You know, I don't really have much toleration for a drunk person when I'm (laughs) not drunk. So, you know, he's explaining things, slurring his speech and all that stuff. Then he said, hey, man, look, across that street where they're printing all that money because the federal mint is right next door. He said everything's going to come to a freaking complete crash. So we need to know how to cook this way in the event that when everything hits the fan." And I was like, okay. So I wrote down a couple of things, and I'm thinking a thing about it to the next day when I woke up, and I was like, eh. And I asked a couple of my friends, they said, yeah, that's pretty valid, man. So I'm like, okay, so I'll include uh, a chapter on on that.
0: Do you call it the so apocalypse?
1: I'd call it uh, entertaining during natural disasters
2: or something like that. <laughs>
0: but Good stuff. Yeah, it is
2: 96 chapters. so it's Yeah. <laughs> just want to explain a little bit more. I mean, we talked about wood for 15 minutes, mm-hmm. and there's several chapters on it. How- But he does the same thing with salt. I mean, he does the same thing with his cooking ingredients. Before you ever get to put the meat on the heat, the books take you through so much background and and history. When You know, me being a history buff, I love that kind of thing. But, you know, where it comes from in the world, where it's harvested, how they use it naturally there, and then how you can apply it to your own cooking. I mean, it's just a fantastic resource, not just for preppers, but I thought for anybody who's who's into cooking, likes cooking outside.
0: So, Will, you said the book's yeah. electronic. Can you find it on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and yes. those types of things? So, the
1: the best way to go is go to my website, c o um, and there's a link on there to buy it. And, um, and that link will take you through, you know, whether there's Amazon, whether you're Kindle guy, whether you're uh, Apple bookstore or Barnes and Noble, it has all that, a link that will take you straight to those pages. And
0: it'll also, I'm sure, provide a link to your Kickstarter page as well.
1: That is going to be about the April timeframe. Right now I'm working on uh, building my social media following. Once I get my YouTube, I'm actually going to, uh, you know, get a business loan and actually start stocking some of my tools. And selling those, and then doing a Kickstarter campaign to fund the book, you know. So I have a more receptive audience once I go hot.
2: Have you seen his pictures on Instagram?
0: Yes, okay. I have. His social media on Instagram is now, yeah, the underscore Asador. Now, Asador means open flame torches. Feature right? those
2: tools that he's talking about too, and they—I mean, some of them look. I'm gonna have a set up on my mantle because they look cool. Yeah, um, <laughs> you could fight with them, I think too. So I mean, I, yeah. If you don't understand what he's talking about I mean, look at those pictures you can see the different ways that he incorporates you know fire and heat to cooking it's not it's not what i thought when i first talked to him about it you're just you're, you're doing wood and you're cooking on flame there's so many different ways to use that it's fun i mean you know again all of this
1: stuff we're talking about it was common knowledge 50 years ago you know and it's just like uh, once it dies out you start coming back and but i'm, I'm coming back with a more of a modern flair and then, you know, I'm kind of a creative person. I mean, you know, being in that stuff, I guess everybody who walks down those paths are pretty creative. And so I'm just basically, you know, I, I take a look at everything that I do. It's like, okay, for example, um, one technique that I use is called deembering So when, right before I get ready to start cooking, I'm going to have this on one of my YouTube videos because it's really, really cool. Once I get ready to start actually cooking, I take one of my tools – I stab a big piece of the biggest piece of burning wood that's on the fire. I'll pick it up and I slam it down on the rest of the fire. Right. And the coals rain down to the base of the fire and then I start separating the wood. And you can't do that at all. I've never seen anyone do that, period, ever. Because there's no tool that supports that other than the one that I developed and got patent. The type of control that I like, I guess most of most folks in the military are control freaks to a certain degree. Yeah. You know, if you if you've been in a lot of places that are uncontrollable, you try to you know create some semblances of control uh, so i developed a lot of tools that allow me to cook the way and try to control something that's as uncontrollable as far as the best as i can
0: awesome man and of course you know you can follow the acidor on social media you can go to the website learn more about it of course by the book you'll not only hear more about will and his cooking techniques but also read about his background and his stories that he shares along with that Appreciate you coming on, well, and sharing your experience. And I hope that you'll come back and tell us more about how things are progressing.
1: I definitely will, definitely will. I appreciate what you guys are doing. It's really good resources for veterans and getting our service out. Right on.
0: Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and at Facebook by searching at Mentors the number four MIL. And please subscribe to our podcast. It's free, and it ensures you're the first to hear our latest podcast show. We have several options depending upon your device. And we're at iTunes, SoundCloud, at Stitcher, and at TuneIn Radio. It doesn't matter whether you are searching for your passion or purpose, finding your way through a military or civilian career, working on your fitness, or just about to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Get after it.